have been told a lot of lies about why we eat what we eat. And there's one super simple reason that people eat foods that hurt them. And that is that we have been trained through messaging from the processed food industry, which was taken over by the tobacco industry in the mid-1980s. We have been trained to crave intensely. You hide addictive substances in a seemingly innocent product. You advertise that product. You create delusion around the product. Like cigarettes are sexy and rebellious and masculine. And oh, you're not a man unless you smoke Marlboro. And delusion, deep, severe delusion around the product. I got superpowers, superpowers. I got superpowers, superpowers. I got superpowers, superpowers. Working seven days a week and 24 hours. Dr. Joan Ifland, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you so much for having me, Laban. I am really excited to be here. Well, how sweet it is to be loved by you. And what a, what a great subject. Folks, if you are just tuning in for the first time or this is the 230th episode of the show you've dialed in, today we're talking about food addiction. So if you are suffering from any kind of food addiction, stick around today because we got we got the best person on the planet to help you with this stuff. Just a, just a pro tip. So, Joan, we are recording this from the beautiful mountains of Rio Negro in Medellin, Colombia. Can you even believe it? I, I'm having a hard time believing it. This is my first trip to South America, and I'm just sort of annoyed that it took me lo- this long to get here. It's beautiful. The people are wonderful. I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm thrilled that I got to meet you. Well, thank you very much. Flattery will get you everywhere. What, what are you doing in Columbia anyway? What are you doing here at this, at this? So I came to the Mountains of Hope Retreat Center to learn about the center. I have just a big population, many, many people. I mean, according to my research, over 80% of Americans are severely addicted to processed foods. And they need all the different kinds of help that they can get. It's a terrible condition. 1.6 million Americans will die from it every year, four times worse than the worst year of COVID. And I need all the help I can get. I'm looking for people who are able to understand the depth of misery that processed foods can bring to a person. And oh my goodness, I found a whole bunch of them here. Uh, this is We've never had a retreat center before in our programs, and I'm just thrilled. I'm at, I've been here for five or six days. I love it here. I have participated in many of the modalities, so I had a personal agenda as well. I've had chronic conditions. I had a very traumatic childhood, long-term. And, oh, my gosh, I'm like a whole new person here after five or six days and getting a lot of Modalities and treatments are just not available in Western medicine and work incredibly well. And I've had a lot of reasons to come here, but I didn't know that one of them was meeting you. <laughs> <laughs> we've, had, uh, we've had some really amazing conversations, probably more profound for me than you realize. Oh. As someone who has 
conquered the demon drink and recreational drug use and sex addiction <laughs> and video games and movies and TV and have been in, in and I don't, I don't use the word recovery, but I, I haven't had a drop in seven years and, and, and it holds no dominion over me. Yeah. One, yeah. Of the, one of the things that has held dominion over me is processed food. And in our conversation the other day, I was saying, Joan, you know, being all high and mighty, it's, it's not our fault, but it is our responsibility. And you were like, no, no, no. Would you, would you mind expanding on what you meant by that? Oh, thank you so much, Laban. That's such a good topic. We have been told a lot of lies about why we eat what we eat. And there's one super simple reason that people eat foods that hurt them. And that is that we have been trained through messaging from the processed food industry, which was taken over by the tobacco industry in the mid-1980s. We have been trained to crave intensely. It's a mechanical alteration in our brains it's the same set of steps that the tobacco industry took that ended up with two-thirds of American adults smoking. So two-thirds of American adults didn't gravitate to smoke and get emphysema on heart disease and lung cancer because they had childhood issues or because of their genetics. They gravitated to smoking because the tobacco industry has honed the model of creating addiction, intense cravings, cravings that are so intense that they dominate rational thought, self-protective thought. That, the, the, the origin of the word addiction is to enslave when you are enslaved, you don't get to choose your behavior. You choose what the master tells you. You don't choose at all. You just do what the master tells you. And, and, and it's in a very appropriate concept for an addiction. So it's very traumatic to tell somebody, oh, if you just took responsibility, you would do better. Because that's just not true. It's not a question of accountability or responsibility or you know, fixing your self-sabotage. It's to, to fix an addiction, to get out from under that slavery, you have to change the environment that the person is in and the messaging that is reaching that person. You specifically have to change the people around that person. So if you are a smoker, and everybody in your household smokes, you don't have a chance. I mean, that's just not realistic. But if you are a smoker, but you, get, you can move to a household, and you know this is not the right image, where nobody smokes, and it's really, really hard to get cigarettes, and you don't quit smoking. <laughs> so when you understand what's going on in the brain, then you know the first thing you have to do is really look at the people around that person. And we've built all of our recovery programs. I don't even like the word recovery. It's a reset. So 
our programs are reset programs. And we, over Zoom, we can surround the brain with healthy eating people. So you don't have to take responsibility or beat yourself up or criticize yourself or judge yourself, none of that. All you have to do is open a Zoom screen enough times a day to persuade your brain that you're now in a tribe that doesn't eat processed foods and doesn't smoke and goes to bed at a reasonable time and gets enough sleep and gets enough movement and gets enough positive thinking and, and has uh, skills to stop negative thinking. You will just do it. But without that, it's not reasonable to ask somebody to do that. One of the more profound statements we had the, the privilege of seeing you present the other day and you were talking about the I think it's the frontal lobe and I grew up in New Zealand in Christchurch and we didn't have a lot poverty is very character building poverty mindset does all the damage but however my mother one of the things she did do she provided uh, as much organic food as, as was feasible, which is a miracle, given the availability back then. But as young as two, I would steal the milk money from the home, climb a two-metre fence, six feet, um, more than that, seven feet, whatever it is, go to the corner store and buy candies. And then when I, was, I remember this when I was 11, Joan. I would ride my bike to school. It was about a mile and on the way, there was a, uh, what we call a dairy, which is a, a milk bar in Australia. It's a shop where they sell stuff. And I, I would get a, a Whitaker's peanut slab and a, a chocolate milkshake for breakfast every day for years at 11. No wonder I couldn't learn anything. And so by the time I finished school, I ended up repeating fifth form a couple of times. So I, I don't have any qualifications, unlike you, who have all the qualifications, but... When I look back, we, when you combine the food that I was eating, bringing in myself, and there was a lot of grains as well because we didn't know about the stuff with bread and, and like we do now. So there's no judgment on my, my darling mother. But I, it makes sense now why I couldn't retain any information. What, could you, are you able to expand a little bit more on why that was happening? Yes. And Laban, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Your childhood was taken from you, the pleasure of developing, engaging, uh, that is taken away from children by processed foods and by screens. Now there's a new addiction, screen addiction. So processed foods are highly addictive. Uh, sugar, if a, a, the taste of sugar reaches a taste bud on the tongue, there will be a dopamine response within a half a second. That makes it the most addictive substance for the dopamine pathway. It's faster than alcohol. It's faster than heroin. It's the fastest addictive response to a substance out there. The tobacco industry knows this. They've done all their research. There's a reason why when tobacco was losing in the courts in the United States, they 
they moved in. They bought 10% of the American food industry in three years. And all you have to do to understand what happened to us all around the world, not just the United States, but New Zealand, everywhere else in the world, is to understand why. Why would tobacco move into processed foods? It's because they're addiction merchants. There is an addiction business model. You uh, hide addictive substances in a seemingly innocent product. You advertise that product. You create delusion around the product. Like cigarettes are sexy and rebellious and masculine. And, oh, you're not a man unless you smoke Marlboro. And delusion, deep, severe delusion around the product. Then you make it very cheap. And then you make it available everywhere. And you start with the youngest possible age you can reach. So every cell in your brain and my brain developed in an addicted brain. So the whole brain is rearranged. It's altered. The way the brain functions is altered by having these substances. So what happened to you? And I have one of those stories, too. I... um. I was addicted as, as a very small child. My very first memory is, is of trying to manipulate an ice cream truck driver into giving me a free ice cream. How did you do that, by the way? <laughs> how did you do that? So I was so little. This is how I know that maybe I was two or three. Um, I was so little, and my hands were so thin that I could put a flashlight, uh, uh, shine it up through my palm, and there would be a red pool on the back of my hand. The light would shine right through my hand. So I got this flashlight, and I pushed it up against the palm of my hand, and I ran out to this truck driver, <laughs> and there's this red circle on the back of my hand. And I showed it to him, and I said, look, look, I'm bleeding. I need an ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the worst. I lied to my mother. So when I was in first grade, um, you could buy a carton of milk at my school for two cents. And I went to my mother and I said, I need two cartons of milk. She thought, oh, my healthy daughter. She would give me four pennies on Monday. Well, I would put those pennies in the back of my desk. And then on Tuesday, I'd get four more pennies. I'd take one of the Monday pennies and put it with the Tuesday pennies. I had five pennies now. I could buy ice cream. I could get an ice cream bar with those five cents. And my brother caught on to it at some point. And I remember him coming, like he left his classroom and walked all the way down to my classroom and asked if he could borrow a penny one day. I said, no, 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 these are my pennies. You get your own pennies. Penny for your thoughts or yeah. your ice cream. So there I am, you know, just lying straight through my teeth at age Five or six. This is full degenerate behavior. This is full-on addiction. As a baby. <laughs> really. As a young, young child. Every person in my communities has a story like that. As a baby, you know, um, crawling, getting the ladder and crawling up really dangerously up to the upper class because they knew that's where the candy vitamins were. Mm -hmm. And sitting down to just eating the whole jar. Children know exactly where the parents have hid everything, and they will go and get it mm -hmm. and hide. It's very, it's very hard to think 
that there are hundreds of millions of children around the world who are not developing. You know, they're not thinking about, oh, you know, can I do something? And I, what can I do with my friend? I want this person to be my friend. Or what's a nice thing I could do for my mother? Oh, I saw this, and, I, and now I understand how that relationship works. No. All that brain space that should be spent learning how to develop relationships and learning how to take care of ourselves, it's all spent, you know, how can I cheat my mother out of a penny so I can mm -hmm. get an ice cream? We become incredibly resourceful when we're addicts <laughs> or backed into a corner. And, and one of the things that really res resonated with me, Dr. Joan, was the, uh, the agnosticness. I think I just created a word there. The agnostic style that is this community. There's no, in many dietary or, or, or these food addiction communities, there, there seems to be an agenda around a particular thing. And I'm very vocal about how I've used the carnivore diet to heal a bunch of my stuff. But people can come to you and be eating whatever they want and it, it's irrelevant to the process. Did I, have I got that? I think you said that really well. Yeah. So once you get, once you get it really deep down on the inside that this is not our fault, that this very sophisticated, very experienced industry, to the tobacco industry, the, this addiction industry, I like to call it a cravings industry. People, addiction is kind of mysterious. But dang, people know when they've given in to a craving. Mm -hmm. I gave a presentation in my community on cravings once, and they, I've been talking about to them about addiction for you know, nonstop. But when I used the word cravings, they all just kind of sat back and said, oh, yeah, it's the cravings. It's the cravings that get me in trouble. Well, those, you can program a human brain to crave, and it's a multi-step process. It was used in tobacco very successfully, and when tobacco bought General Foods, they got Kool-Aid. They took the tobacco addiction business model, the development part of it, where you're developing the addiction in an unsuspecting person, and they... There are internal documents that are on file at University of California, San Francisco, that describe how they deliberately took that Marlboro Country Store addiction development business model and created the wacky warehouse for Kool-Aid. It's, it's you, you, you make the, the product very easy to get. It's like I remember being on a plane as a kid in the 1950s maybe early 60s, and the stewardess brought a lunch tray and there was a pack of three cigarettes on there. Fantastic. I mean, that's terrible. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You just got Former for that cigarette smoker here, by the way. <laughs> yeah, also me now with, you know, asthma. So um, it takes three cigarettes before you start to create a dependency so now that corresponding reward center will just kind of go into a daze unless it's stimulated by the drug. So, um, 
you get those three cigarettes, and, and that's, that's enough to start the dependency. And then you get coupons. So then they distribute coupons. Then you use the coupons to buy your first pack of cigarettes. And then you, you notice with the, the coupons on the package, you could send that in, and you could get a Marlboro lighter or a belt buckle or a hat or a jacket or shirt. Now you are being subjected to something called associative cueing. This is diabolical. Now you're wearing a signal that can signal your brain to crave. So they took that exact model over to Kool-Aid, which is nothing but sugar, flavored sugar. It's a, for those who don't know, it's a, what, a cordial, is it what you would call it? Maybe? It's, a, it's a drink mix. A flavored. So you get a little packet of flavored sugar and you mix it with water and you make a drink of it. And you're literally drinking the Kool-Aid. You're drinking the Kool-Aid. And yeah. So, um, so they brought that model over to Kool-Aid for children because it's part of the addiction model. Get the youngest possible user. It's why when they went to market camel cigarettes, they used a cartoon character so that they would appeal to children. It's diabolical. What I wanted to, to just inject Sorry. into the... No, 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 that was beautiful. Was in the... Uh, and I'm not sure whether you were privy to this as well. Uh, we're here with some incredible doctors and and the tobacco, as we've experienced in this retreat, uh, we did one of these Temescal ceremonies where they where they uh, they create liquid gold, which is from from memory they they boil down like sixty kilos of tobacco plant down into one kilo of this extract, and we took it as part of the ceremony. Nicotine. Or t tobacco in its natural state isn't addictive from what Dr. Brian Arnes was saying. They actually added a chemical to it. Not that I'm condoning cigarette smoke, but there is some, there's some brilliant stuff around um, the use of nicotine for uh, therapeutic and um, prophylactic stuff. So, Separate conversation. So I've, and this is new to me, and I haven't been able to go back to the research, but I did hear somebody say you cannot find a study that describes the addictive properties of nicotine. So I'm going to I'm going to go back and look that up. Worth worth what? Don't take my word for it, folks. Just uh, let's yeah. let's. It's isn't it fascinating though that like this thing. But sorry, you go continue. They took that exact model. So we've we've heard discussions here this week about um, adding pyrazine and sugar and then something else to the the, the cigarette paper to make it more addictive. And I, that I have read. So when they came into processed foods, they did the same thing. You could eat a slice of bread in 1970 and go on about your day. You could have a sandwich with two slices of bread and go on about your day. But by the 1990s, the, when they came into processed foods, they hired a consultant, Harvard-trained consultant, Howard Moskowitz, his PhD is in experimental psychology of marketing, and he developed a method for putting sugar, fat, salt into products uh, right up to the point where the consumer could detect them. So that, that slice of bread in 1970, okay, it had wheat in it, it had gluten in it, okay. 
But by the 1990s, that slice of bread was loaded with hidden high fructose corn syrup and hidden fats and hidden salt. So that if you ate a slice of that bread in 19, say 1990, by the 1990s, it would act, the, the high fructose corn syrup would activate the dopamine pathway. The excessive salt would activate the opioid pathway in the brain. And the excessive fat would activate the, the cannabinoid pathways. So those are the same pathways that are activated by alcohol and opium and marijuana. So when you have multiple pathways being activated, you know, it's much, much harder to stop. So you could eat that slice of bread and think that you were going to go on your way. But now the brain, the, the reward pathways are pumping out so much neurotransmitter that they have control of the behavior center. It goes straight over. There's no engagement from the frontal lobe. You know, we started talking about what is it like to go through school and be labeled dumb or slow, which I was too. It happens. I have an extraordinary IQ. I have an extraordinary, I have a very unusual IQ, but I was labeled slow. Well, while you're there, Joan, why don't you just reel off some of your accreditations for us? <laughs> well, let me finish let this me one you, thought. Let you blow your trumpet when you're yep. ready. Let me, let me finish this one thought because I want everybody on the planet to know that they are smart they're not slow. They're not dumb. Because I see it in my communities all the time. You get people off the processed foods, and you get them into a positive messaging environment. You're smart. You're capable. Oh, look at that great thing that you just did. You know, Some people are getting praise for being smart for the first times in their lives. They're 60 years old. Okay, so that's what happened to you. You were, uh, you were given access to numbing, brain fog-inducing drugs. But sugar is not a food, it's a drug. Mm -hmm. And when people come off those processed foods, they, they realize they're smart. And we're, we're right there to train them and employ them in our companies. We're just so excited to have them, and they're excited to, to be treasured and cherished and, and to have a job, a job that they can do really well. So... I want everybody on the planet to know you are not dumb. You are being given a drug which creates brain fog. This, these drugs, these processed foods are inflammatory. They inflame the brain, and, and we experience that as brain fog. can't think. But the other thing that's happening is because of all this activity back in the addicted centers, these reward centers, pleasure centers, they have a lot of names. The frontal lobe is not getting blood flow. <laughs> it's not getting energy. And you, this is just one of the hardest things in 20, I've been in this field now for 28 years, since 1996. I came across the research on the frontal lobe development in obese children versus lean children. Now, obese children are not obese children to me. They are children who have been food addicted by these vicious corporations. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's because that frontal lobe is not getting blood supply. That child is being subjected to severe cravings. And, and when you get people off these processed foods 
And you stimulate, it's very wonderful. You can, you can revitalize, you can restore the frontal lobe. It's not over. The brain will grow right into the, your last dying breath. It will grow, it will respond to stimulation, it will develop new capabilities all the time. So in our programs, we have a lot of hours of conversation. Conversation stimulates the frontal lobe. And people just love this. Well, what I wanted to bring out, one of the things that I really resonate and love, this is a guess because I haven't been through the program yet. I've just joined. Is that because they are getting away from the brain fog and, and the, the frontal lobe is starting to activate, you're giving them this, the belief to go and learn and make better decisions. With, so that there'll be people that'll go in all kinds of different directions and figure out all kinds of things. And I know this, Joan, because this is exactly what happened to me when I cleared up my diet. My intelligence, and I'm going to be humble brag for a minute, like for a guy that didn't finish school... You know, I've written an incredible book, not just my opinion. I've read the first chapter. It is an incredible <laughs> book. It's really well written. <laughs> right. And, and I, very entertaining. <laughs> no chat GPT. I didn't get a ghostwriter. It's all me. I think the conversations that I'm able to have and the intuitive response, my connection to source has improved, my empathy. Animals treat me better. Do I'm they even, now? <laughs> I swear. I was running shirtless on a beach in Queensland about three and a half, four years ago. And honestly, about eight or nine dogs ran. That was a leashless beach. And so these dogs that were just running freely started running alongside me. And I, my younger brother was running with me. And I said, Josh, they are following the alpha male. And he goes, it's because you smell like steak. <laughs> but I still, yeah. I, still think, I still think there's some, some energetic connection. Oh, totally. Absolutely, totally. right? So, totally. so this is the exciting component of what people can, can expect. There's no agenda around whatever dietary choice you make, all right? Mm-hmm. Like it, you've got all these diverse communities. You, you are the, probably one of the least judgmental people I've ever met in my entire life, which in this day and age is a miracle of God in itself. How the hell do you do that? So this is um, training, and this is training. You can train to be non-judgmental. There are two pieces to it. it will, so one is a system of communication called motivational interviewing. It was developed by a psychologist and a therapist and maybe an MD because they wanted a more respectful way to talk to their patients. And it is a system that elicits the ideas of the other person and then uh, praises the other person for those ideas. It's very confidence-building. And, um, okay, so that's one piece of it. You can train. We have a program called Food Addiction Recovery Advocate. Before you kick off into that, can you give us one example of motivational interviewing? I can. Because I, I think this is amazing. It's totally amazing. When I stumbled across... You may not know me, but let me tell you one thing. I don't care what you think. I'm a just do me, and I want to hear you sing. I got... When I stumbled across this... Do it, do it to me now. Yes, okay. You, is that okay? Yeah. Put um. me on the spot here. <laughs> this is live, being live recorded. <laughs> and I didn't give Joan any prep for any of these outrageous questions. 
You know what? I, I did. I just did it. So you brought up your book. And I, when you gave me your book yesterday, I took it home and I read the first chapter. I couldn't stop reading. So when uh, we were talking about intelligence and da-da-da-da-da, um, I brought up your book and I gave you some praise in detail. Mm, you absolutely did. It's very well written. It's very entertaining. And, and that is motiv- that's one of the motivational interviewing techniques. So another one would be affirming. So I could say, you are a great writer. And it's so impressive. And it really illustrates that formal education is not uh, a a prerequisite Mm -hmm. for having a great intellectual life and having a really being a healer, helping other people, blah, blah, blah. So I'm now I'm affirming you and your mission and what you do and then I would do a, a summary. I would say, Laban, gosh, I've just known you for a few days, and when I'm not with you, I think about you, and I think about the things that you've said, and uh, you've told me that you had a really tough upbringing, and that you knew that you were addicted when you were a small child, and that you would stop at the dairy store and get a milkshake, and a, I don't even know what the other... The Whittaker's <laughs> peanut slayer. Yes, and... Um, and you, and you have created a life for yourself. You've traveled the world. You've beat one addiction after another, and um, it's just so impressive. That's a technique called summarizing. Wow, and it feels real too. I feel like it's it's not it's not being facetious in any manner. And, and there's this incredible subtext going on there, which is you are so important that I have remembered things that you have said, and. And people just don't get that in our culture. Mm-hmm. And then there's, um, and then there's another technique called planning. So um, I would say, and tell me what you're going to do next. Like, what are you, what are you thinking about uh, doing next? Well, if that's a serious question, well, my my wife and I have made the decision to move to Medellin at least for the next, you know, three or four months. That might change, but we're going to use that opportunity to learn Spanish. We're going to ideally run our retreats through PurposePartnersForLife.com. There's a plug for couples at this incredible retreat facility. Uh, we're going to use it to connect with incredible ex- expat community here. We're going to uh, continue to find a solution to this, these pregnancy challenges. That's probably further up the list than the other ones. I, I mean, you put me on the spot, but they're the most obvious things, and I feel great sharing this with you. Well, Laban, wow. So you are going to settle here in Medellin for three, at least the next three or four months. You're going to develop. You've been doing this for a long time. Your heart is in helping other people. I've seen your beautiful relationship with your wife, and you are bringing that model to other people and running, and you're thinking about how to run retreats, and you're you're creating new pathways for couples to to thrive, and you're also going to work on creating your own family here. Mm-hmm. What a great plan! Wow! Thank you very much. Uh, please stay in touch and let me know how <laughs> it goes. You you will be one of the honorary grandparents or godparents rather, <laughs> one of many when this baby comes along. Yes. So, 
So that's another, that's another, our training in motivational interviewing of 21 videos. And then we've adapted this system to infuse it with compassion and science. So science is how you deliver compassion. If I can explain to you what happened in your brain when you were given sugar as a child, that a pathway developed in the midbrain between the pleasure centers and the behavior centers, you didn't ask for it. Nobody ever called you up and said, gee, I'd like to alter your brain so that I can control your cravings, give you intense cravings which control your behavior, and um, make your frontal lobe crash. Would you like to sign up for that? Nobody ever made that call. Yeah, so we are, I don't like the word victim because people think that, oh, victim, now I'm a victim, oh, I'll just stay here. Mm-hmm. No. Don't do that. What you, but what, what you do want to impart is that our governments stood by while the processed food industry was allowed to give us, I can argue that this is the most severe addiction on the planet. People are, oh, no, no, fentanyl, you know, drop dead immediately. Mm-hmm. It's a much slower death, but you never get to live. You're numbed out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a, also a combination addiction. It's not just sugar. It's sugar and flour and gluten and dairy and excessive salt and um, uh, excessive fats, caffeine, food additives, so just to finish that story about the bread, the loaf of bread, Howard Moskowitz went around with his technique, data-intensive technique, and maxed out the amount of sugar, fat, salt you know, that you could put into to a tomato sauce. He hid it everywhere, these corporations. And then once one corporation did it, all the corporations had to do it because if you could buy you know, so-and-so's green beans and they were filled with salt... You would go back and buy those. Everybody had to up their salt levels to compete with that. Well, by by the 1990s then, when you had that slice of bread, and it was packed with high fructose corn syrup and salt and processed fats, you're, you're now taking control of your behavior out of the frontal lobe, like I got things to do this afternoon, and you're moving it back to those reward pathways, those addicted pathways, the craving pathways. And you just stand there and eat the whole loaf. The cravings have control of your behavior now. Mm-hmm. You eat one slice, you think you're going to go do something, but suddenly you, you turn around and you just work your way through the entire loaf. And maybe you go to the store and get a few more. I remember in Australia, maybe in the last 10 years, they Subway, the Subway Sandwiches place, in Australia, at least, they had to—they weren't allowed to call it bread anymore because the amount of sugar that was in there overtook the amount of wheat that was in there. Do you know anything about this? It's—it's it's a chemical cesspool, and they, I think they did the same thing in the UK, but not the United States. Oh no, that's still being sold as bread. It's not bread. It's—it's just—it's just a clump of chemicals. That's why it tastes so good, folks. And you think you're eating healthy, but it's probably the, one of the least healthier ones. Well, it's—it's it's toxic. So um, just two real quick thoughts. The addiction will alter your taste perception. It's that powerful. You remember that jingle, uh, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. 
I don't, they didn't have it when I grew up, but I have heard about this. <laughs> Winston's taste horrible. <laughs> and do. so if, you're, if the addiction's not active, if the addiction isn't dictating, think about that word addiction. Mm-hmm. It's got the word dictator in it. Mm-hmm. So wow. if, the, if the, the craving pathways are not dictating perception to the taste buds, if you're not in active addiction then uh, cigarettes will taste bad. I would not be able to put a Subway bun into my mouth. It would, I, could, I would be able to taste the chemicals. When I walk past a restaurant that is using you know, processed fats to fry you know, french fries. Seed oils or... I can smell the chemicals. Me too. Me too. And that's because uh, my addiction is not active. And so the, the true, so true taste is coming through. I remember the last time I put a soda in my mouth, I spit it out. <laughs> it just tasted so bad. Yeah, processed foods taste really bad if you, if you can get far enough away from them and get those parts of your brain stabilized, then taste will return. Yeah, it's really fun. It's really exciting. Just a fun side note, folks, while you're enjoying this, hopefully enjoying this podcast, there's two of your incredible, we'll call them colleagues, Dr. Robert uh, Lustig and Dr. Chris Palmer. And you can go back through, however you're consuming this interview, I I will endeavour to put the the links to those interviews uh, in the show notes for this, that they they will uh, complement a lot of what you're talking about today. And I know you've got a huge amount of respect for both of those two, Mm -hmm. those two incredible doctors. Yeah. And the work they're doing. Uh, just a quick other side note. Uh, I went through a phase when I was living in the United States earlier this year and last year where I pounded those Zevia drinks. The, the, it's the brand Z-E-V-I-A. And they're sweetened with a stevia, which I know is <laughs> terrible as well. But they're very popular because they're very low carb and they taste great. Do you... Like, this still falls into the same category of all the other junk that we're talking about. Yes, yes. So um, there, are, there are a couple of lines. There's LaCroix La, La La mm-hmm. and uh, Waterloo. They're, so they picked up on this idea. So let's talk about associative cueing. I know, you were just dying. What is associative cueing? Well... So we are, we're still functioning to a large degree the way we were three and a half million years ago. The only thing that's changed, so, so seven million years ago, um, you know, the first, the earliest forms of humans appeared, you know, according to evolutionists. But there are some very interesting parallels to the creationist uh, framework of, of thought. So we had the reptilian brain uh, seven million years ago, and then about three and a half million years ago, we we developed the emotional brain, the midbrain. And then about 200,000 years ago, we got a frontal lobe. Cool, super cool. The frontal lobe is just this very thin, kind of like a, a shell, like a thin pasting of these analytical brain cells across the front. Uh, it's a prefrontal cortex. It's a teeny, 
teeny tiny part of the brain. It's like maybe 2% of the brain. Or even less if you, instead of thinking about number of brain cells, you think about number of transactions. So once you get how to manipulate manipulate your own brain cell, your own brain through signaling, then you can stabilize the brain. You can organize the brain to work for you and instead of working for the advertisers. And that's what we do a lot of that in our programs. I don't know. Did that answer your question? Could you give me the question again? No, I'm not no, sure no, no, I answered no. it. Well, um, it, it's, it's beautiful. I don't want to use this opportunity to give away what would be superficial information that people would need to really immerse themselves in. For people that want to get a hold, get access to this community to find out more about you and your credentials if they need that information, how do people do that? This may sound kind of funny because, my, well, my own story is, you know, I was addicted as a child, a very, very thin child. We were all thin. There wasn't these, in, in, I grew up in the 50s, there, there weren't these monstrous, you know, family packs of, Incredibly fattening food. Uh, we didn't have high fructose corn syrup. High fructose corn syrup didn't come on the market until the 1980s. And it was it really precipitated the move of, of tobacco into processed foods because one of those, one big, big element of the addiction business model is that it, you have to, the, the substance has to be cheap enough that you can buy it often enough to establish and then maintain the cravings. And until high fructose corn syrup came on the market, the only sweetener was sugar, you know, being sold by their fellow drug dealers. And they said, no, 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 we're not going to put our financial well-being in the hands of a, another drug dealer. But high fructose corn syrup availability is just endless. So... Um, When you get that this is a business practice, so I have a Stanford MBA way, way back there. There were a lot of years when I wondered why I had gotten that degree. It just didn't seem to be germane to what I was doing. And then I got it. There is an addiction business model, and I have published on this, and I think it's, it's just vital that everybody know that they're being manipulated by a business model. It's the same business model that the alcohol industry uses, the cannabis industry uses, and now the opioid business use this. You know, it's deception, and it's hiding the addictive properties of the product and all those things that we've talked about. I think it's fair to say I'm one of two PhDs. There are only two PhDs on the planet who have a degree in addictive nutrition. Kathleen de Maison is the other one, and she wrote the um, Potatoes Not Prozac book. And then the Little Sugar Addicts, the Littlest Sugar Addicts book. Um, so I have a PhD in this field. And I had just some great mentors through that process. And so one of them, Mary Pruce, who's no longer with us, um, got me an invitation to write the textbook for the field. It's called Processed Food Addiction, Foundations, Assessment, and Recovery. And you can get it on Amazon, CRC Press. And I just, the, you know, the forces of the world combined, and I had three years in which I could sit full-time, seven days a week, 
I mean, I transferred a lot of my food addiction to workaholism <laughs> and, uh, and build this textbook. I wrote 70% of it myself, and I, I got other experts to contribute chapters. But that book rests on 2,000 studies. There are 2,000 citations in that book. And you, you can't argue anymore. The people, of course, you know, they want to say, oh, processed food industry, oh, that's ridiculous. How could you get addicted to food? So now that argument is over. It's over. And people have come back to me and say, oh, you know, I was able to do my master's program because I had all the citations. I knew where to start the, the search for research for, for the evidence. And then um, six years ago, we started this online recovery community, and it's, it's called the Addiction Reset Community. It can be found at Food Addiction Reset, and, we, and it worked. So it's messaging, 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 right? That's what you, got. you can't start with the food plan. You've got to start with the messaging. And we see people who've never been able to have a day free from these processed foods within three to five days because we broadcast 15 hours a day and they can listen to it while they're going on with their lives, um, their brains will slide over. Oh, this is a new tribe. The dominant force in the brain is to belong. Because if you belonged through those years of seven million years of evolution, your tribe would protect you from predators. Humans are not a big animal they're not as big as a tiger or a hyena, I mean, even a pack of hyenas. We have to rely on each other for, for survival. And so it's not Maslow's, your, your highest priorities are food, water, shelter. Your highest priority is to belong in a group. And the brain is constantly, constantly monitoring our environments for who's there and what are they doing. Because if it's by copying behavior that you belong, that you're accepted, and then the, the people around you will protect you because you belong with them. It's the highest priority in a human brain, which is to fit in with the people around you. So how does the brain decide which group of people to fit in with? It's the people they see the most. So that's why we structured our, the, the, the backbone of our programs. It, it's like a TV station. You can open your Zoom screen on your phone, on your tablet, on your laptop, on your desktop, and you can play this in the background. And it takes seemingly about three to five days for the brain to just slide over away from the advertisers, away from, you know, processed food is fun and delicious, and cigarettes are sexy and rebellious, away from that, over to, oh, we don't eat that. And then everything is easy. So this swings all the way back around to your first comment about why did I put my hand up and say, no, 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 you can't take responsibility for this. You can put yourself in a position where you make it possible even easy and fun for your brain to, uh, to direct you, direct your behavior to eat clean foods and get enough sleep and get movement and think positively and 
process negativity. And you've got to surround yourself with people who are doing that, and then your brain will just, it'll make you do it. You know, it gets, it's almost helpless. It's almost helpless that we will imitate. We will, you know, our brains love us. Our brains love us, and they want us to belong in a, in a group so that we will be protected. And it will love us right into conforming with people who are eating, Americans eat 73% of their food and processed foods. I, I want to add something to what you're sharing, Joan, uh, through my own personal experience. When I quit alcohol, there was a period of between 6 to 12 months where my, I had a very large social circle and I, I really, over the course of 12, 18 months, 97% of my former circle of friends just evaporated. I didn't know what was going on back then. I do know. I know now. And it's not that they're bad people at all. They're not. But we had nothing in common with... They were drinking buddies, right? And we were all in this big codependent party that had been running for, you know, 25 years. What then happened was I, I realised later on that that created all this incredible room in my life for other amazing, high-quality humans. And the reason I wanted to bring this up, if you're listening to this, to complement what Dr. Joan is doing, if you know that when you go through this journey, it's likely that people that you are friends with now may not be friends in the future, and that's okay. Because the people that are the true friends, the ones that should be in your life, and again, we're not tearing into any one group here, they, the ones that are supposed to be there will be there, and I still have a very much smaller circle of incredible people that have been in my life. COVID finished off a few more. Mm. But I was at that stage, I was used to it. And there's a great quote from... Les Brown, he says, what people think of me is none of my spiritual business. And, and I know that's one of the 12-step programs as well. So I, the reason I wanted to share this is that if you are going into this, into this journey and you get involved with Dr. Jones' amazing program, don't, don't feel bad about shedding a bit of dead weight because it's going to create more space for high-quality humans. What do you think about that? You have just touched on a fascinating, fascinating topic. Um, and it is social circles. So social circles determine our behavior. And we know this because we have, we have a, a very specialized neuron, very specialized brain cell, and it's, it's, it's networked throughout our entire brain so that it can influence any part of the brain. They're called mirror neurons. Because they literally, what you're, what you're seeing, the, the input that's coming in through your sensory, your eyes, your ears, your taste, it is like a mirror that's reflecting that straight down onto your brain cells so that you are having the same experience at about a 20% level. This is such a fascinating topic. So there's a researcher, Barr, B-A-H-R, who looked at social circles and their impact on weight status. Your weight status is, what, what this researcher found is your weight status is determined by your social circle. And there, this is so apparent, so well supported. They've got a statement in that study 
you cannot lose weight unless your social circle is losing weight. As your social circle gains weight, so will you gain weight. And like we, we, re, we were talking to somebody who was going to join one of our communities, and I said, well, you know, think about it for 24 hours. Well, let's touch base again tomorrow. They came back and they said, I cannot join your community. And I, and I said, why? And they said, because I will lose my best friend. So once you get that, once you get, now this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the dominant force in the brain is to belong to a group, seven to 12 people, or maybe four or five people are in your innermost circle, and then seven to 12, and then there's another kind of circle of 40 or so people. But obesity travels in social circles. This is the work of, um, it's in a book called Connection, two Harvard scientists, Fowler and Christopher, I think. Um, but they, there's a massive amount of data collected through a, a long-term study called the Framington Heart Studies. It was a community study in Massachusetts. And they've been able to see that obesity will travel through social circles. So what you're talking about is, and it's why 12-step groups are, are set up the way they are set up. It's so that when your drinking buddies fall away or your binge buddies, um, you, you, your brain, it, gives, it gives your brain a place to slide over to and belong. If you don't have a social circle, your brain will create one out of television. I was talking to somebody once about, the, oh, you know, I don't watch television for this reason. I don't want my brain to follow anybody on television. I mean, I know they're good people. I know they're, they're subjected to, you know, the thin ideation and they're just beaten to smithereens in terms of their metabolism by producers who want them to be ultra thin. It's all very sad, but dang, I don't want my brain copying that. But it will. The brain will copy people it sees on a screen. And I was talking to somebody once in, uh, about one of the, the long-running sitcoms. So you think it's hard to get off of alcohol or processed foods? Try getting off of television for this very reason that we're talking about. And I mentioned a particular show, and they said, oh, yeah, they're my friends. It's like, no, the hell they're not. <laughs> but the brain will desperately, desperately, like, okay, copy them, get into that group. The brain doesn't know that they're not there. The brain doesn't, 98% of the brain doesn't understand that there's a screen there. And that image is not a person sitting a few feet away from you. And oh my gosh, the, the screen industry just exploits that mercilessly. Well, speaking of the, the silver screen, uh, I'm not going to commit to anything now, but there might be some possibility in the future of your amazing community being broadcast onto, I suppose, cable TV in the United States and maybe even further. We won't commit to anything right now, but there's some amazing things bubbling away. Because if you if you think about, you know, I'm growing up in the 90s, all I remember seeing uh, infomercials for blue blockers 
and Tony Robbins is like, <laughs> you know, personal power thing. I remember, like, I watched it thousands of times because television used to shut off at about, you know, midnight. We had three channels for most of my childhood, uh, and then cable TV eventually came. But the stuff that switched on at midnight was with these infomercials, right? So imagine if there's something that's way more productive, not that Tony Robbins stuff isn't great, but but uh, if they can sit there and, and enjoy that content. So, but that's that's for another time. I don't want to put you on the spot. What, Joan, Joan what's the name of the, the place that they can go to go find this? We've started so many stories here. I just, I, I have, I have, I mean, I think it's fair to say because of my work on the textbook that I've created the scientific basis for the field and that I am a, a leading authority in recovery from processed foods. About a year, two years ago, I had decided that I was not going to live the rest of my life with the addicted label. Those monsters gave this to me. And I am not, I am not going to let them label me. So about two years ago, we started a, a remission community. And this is a more advanced community. It's using many more advanced like energy management modules. So we have three, four basic programs now. Let me just walk through them one by one. We have the daily living program, which historically we've called the Addiction, Addiction Reset Community. I, I guess I'll go ahead and announce here. I'm going to rename it the, it's A Reset Community. We've already decided we're not going to use the word addiction in our communities anymore. We're going to use the word cravings. And so, but nonetheless, for right now, I mean, we're just transitioning right now. You can find the daily living community at foodaddictionreset.com. Go there. You can take the self-quiz for the signs of addiction to processed foods, and you will receive an invitation to a free workshop, and I usually go to that workshops. I, this is my most important mission, is to get people off, you know, out of the storm, out of the hurricane, out of this pain, stop suffering, and into a safe space. So that's the basic community. The, it's a reset community. That's the daily living. That's the 15 hours a day of programming around the clock. That's the one that's, if you can watch TV, you can be successful in that program. We've got it set up. The, the next program is the Food Addiction Recovery Advocate Training. At, and it imparts very specific skills that we can use to help ourselves and we can use to help another person. So people have been battered, you know, tra traumatized by a message, you're not good enough unless you buy a product. Uh, you're stupid unless you buy a product. You're in pain unless you buy a product. So that this messaging is now embedded in our brains. So we do a lot of training in how to restore another person. So you, it's, you restore another person by telling them it's not your fault because of the business practices, and you use motivational interviewing, and you explain why um, why it's not their fault that they have failed because they don't have an hour-by-hour -hour 
community of healthy people to imitate explains all the signs of food addiction and how it spreads out and impacts all parts of life so that people don't think, oh, that's happening because of my childhood issues. No, that's happening because that's one of the consequences. It's one of the repercussions of processed foods so that you stay focused on the right issues. We teach how to build a custom food plan. So we have carnivores and plant-based and paleo and Mediterranean in our community. They all coexist very happily because they all know that that's the right food plan for them. We don't tell anybody what to eat, but we empower them to create a custom food plan for themselves. And we teach a lot of emotional processing. We, have, we don't have one license in the community. It's all expert peer support. But we do know how to do neuro, what's called neurosculpting, how to teach brain cells to talk to each other differently. So, that, so that's the food addiction recovery advocate training. It's, it's about six months to go through the program, self-paced. And then it's followed by options. You can go into an additional year of support training. But I think one of the things I'm proudest of is our influencer pathway. So you create that six months, you sit for some competencies, and now you can offer short courses and you can offer one-on-one -on -one consults, and you can offer a small group, and you can take care of our daily living members, and you can make money. I just think that one of the reasons why things are so messed up out there is because in the US, it's unregulated capitalism at this point, and nobody can figure out, you know, they just perceive, oh, well, they're not buying processed foods, now they're not buying medical services because processed foods cause an incredible range of disease. They, they cripple cell function. So in my six years of having these online communities, I've seen almost everything go into remission. So, But the, the thing that I'm really focusing on next is our remission optimistic community. So the Food Addiction Recovery Advocate you can find at foodaddictionrecoveryadvocate.com. And that's the training program. And that's what leads to the influencer program where you can actually make back. We have to charge for the training because we pay our people. This mm -hmm. is not a volunteer organization. As you should, as you should. Yes, yeah. people deserve to get paid for what they're doing. So, and then you can go into the influencer program. The th cool thing about the influencer program is that your heart, your talents, your skills go straight out to the people who need them because we're building the websites and we're running the ad campaigns and all the technical stuff is done for you. It's just, it's just, we need a whole army of voices. And my goal is, A, number one, stop suffering. So if I can get you out there with your story and your messaging and your skills, then, then, then you're stopping suffering. So I don't want you to be stuck, you know, because... You don't like your website, or you don't know how to build it, or you don't know how to collect a fee, and you don't know how to create payroll. We do all of that, and you have your voice out there, and you're earning income from that. This is all fantastic. It's the remission community that um, I just, I mean, I'm so grateful. You talk about something really, really good come, coming out of something really scary. About two years ago, my closest colleague uh, in all my businesses uh, was diagnosed with a fatal cancer. 
And um, she was given seven months to live. She's still with us, almost two years later. We've, we found a book called Radical Remission by Kelly Turner. It's about cancer remission. We adapted it to remission of all disease. We knew from our experience with this six years, at that time four years, of watching you know, one disease after another go into remission, and just in the daily living community, that we could give our programs a different doorway. And so... Remission optimistic, if you have been told you have an incurable disease, if you've been told that this is a chronic disease, if you've been told you're going to be on medication for the rest of your life, if you've been told you just have to live with that pain because you're going to have it for the rest of the life, please, I'm begging you, go to remissionoptimistic.com. You don't have to go to an expensive program. It's not expensive. It's very inexpensive, by the way. Yeah. Very inexpensive. And it's a program that you will want to live with year after year after year. And it can be accessed from anywhere in the world. And you can make this happen from your home. And all the things that you will learn in that, if you decide to do the recovery advocate training as well, great. You will be able to save the people around you. It's just so hard hard out there well this is the beautiful thing that i love to call the gift of adversity joan is that when you are overcoming when you overcome adversity you often get a gift from god or the universe to share that with other people that need it and that's exactly what i've done and so when you say i uh, yeah it is hard it is hard but it's, there's a really great way to mitigate a lot of that hardness and it's to teach uh, from a place of service. And, and, you know, you don't need to be healed to, to teach this stuff. There's a great movie, Catch Me If You Can, with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, and he taught a whole semester of school. And they interviewed Frank Abagnale, the real-life character, years later. said, Frank, how did you do that? He said, well, I had the, I had the, the, the textbook, <laughs> and I was one lesson ahead of the kids. And that, that's the whole point of this. You, don't, you just need to be one step ahead of the person that you're working with. And I think that's the beauty of what you're doing. You could go from a 600-pound bedridden disaster zone to teaching and healing people within a few short years, months. One day. One day. So our first, the first assignment in the recovery training is the story of the, how the tobacco industry came into processed foods and brought the addiction, this intense craving business model. You can literally save somebody's life by just telling them that story because they think they have failed here, failed there, failed there, failed, and, and they haven't. They've been, they've been sold pro broken programs. They've been sold programs that were broken at conception. The programs failed. That one failed, and that one failed, and that one failed, and the bariatric surgery failed, and the Weight Watchers failed, and the Jenny Craig failed, and all those programs failed because they weren't addressing the cravings. So, and they weren't addressing the 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 um, the devastation of the business model. So, you just look at somebody and you say, "Well, do you do you remember the tobacco? Like R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris bought." Kraft, Nabisco, and General Foods in three short years. And all you have to do is say, why would an addiction merchant 
move into processed foods. Mm -hmm. You could have saved a life right there. So no, if you decide to sign up for one of our trainings, I will interview you personally, or I will get one of my my people to interview you to make sure that it's it's going to be going to really work for you this training. But you will be empowered to start saving lives on the first day. Joan, this has been just an enlightening, magnificent, very, uh, I love these in-person recordings. And, and for the listener, thank you for staying with us. Do you have any concluding thoughts for our amazing audience today? Just one overriding thought. This is not your fault. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Joan Earthland. Thank you. Thank you, Laban. Thank you so much.